Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. An ordinary school bus that figures in the biggest kidnapping in U.S. history. There are parents calling the schools saying, where's my son at? Where's my daughter at? The U.S. city that is ravaged by a devastating inferno. People were scalded. They were running through the streets. And a cluster of mysterious stones recovered from a shipwrecked galleon. It was worth more than its weight in gold. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. La Grande, California. This sleepy suburban town in the heart of the Central Valley is home to some 1,600 people. And here at Bright's Pioneer Exhibit is one artifact that seems to blend in with these peaceful surroundings. But museum curator James Bright knows that it holds a dark secret. The item is about 30 feet long, and it is a very, very bright yellow. On the surface, this looks like an ordinary school bus. But in fact, it has a shocking history. It was involved in a heinous crime that affected the families in this valley. So what notorious felony was committed on board this bus? July 15, 1976, Chowchilla, California. 3 p.m. It's the end of a normal school day in this idyllic rural community. And a party of children boards this bus to go home. But one hour later, 26 kids ages 5 to 14 have still not arrived at their destinations. There are parents calling the school saying, where's my son at? Where's my daughter at? Is the bus broke down? Then they started calling the police department. And by 6 o'clock, there was a full-scale search. Local authorities scour every inch of the Central Valley. 
But the students and their bus driver, 55-year-old Ed Ray, are nowhere to be found. Then, at 8 p.m., police make an alarming discovery. Just nine miles west of Chowchilla, the school bus is spotted, abandoned in a field. They had the bus, but they had no kids, they had no driver, and at this time they were getting very desperate. It appears that the bus has been deliberately hidden, a fact which leads the authorities to a disturbing conclusion. They were pretty sure at this time that a kidnapping must have been going on. And if they are right, it would be the biggest kidnapping in U.S. history. So what happened to the kids? Several hours earlier, the school children's bus was stopped by three armed, masked men who forced the 26 kids and their driver into two separate vans. Then the kidnappers kept them in there for hours driving and zigzagging across the valley so that none of the kids would be able to judge how far they had really been taken. Then, nearly 12 hours after the abduction, both vans finally stop. They pull up into this area. It's pitch dark. They are forced to climb down a hole and put in some container that was dark. Once inside, the captives hear the sound of dirt being piled on top of the container roof. Little do they know that they are being buried alive in the trailer of a truck. They, I'm sure, were scared to death. And the only creature comforts they have are a little food and water and a few mattresses. Terrified, most of the children fear that they will not make it out of this gloomy prison alive. But two of the older boys and Ed Ray make the decision that they're not going to die in there. The three brave captives stack the mattresses on top of one another. And they are eventually able to make a small hole in the roof of the container. Then the bus driver and the older boys begin frantically digging themselves out with their bare hands. And four hours later... They finally see light. They dug a hole big enough and were able to free one of the kids and then another and another and get everyone out alive. After 16 harrowing hours underground, all 27 captives emerge into what seems to be some kind of rock quarry. It's there that they are found by a local worker and their ordeal is finally over. Later that night, the victims are reunited with their families. I'm sure that they were ecstatic, but uh, most of all, very, very happy to be alive. But a perplexing question remains. Who and where are the kidnappers? Investigators scour the scene of the crime. And when they excavate the buried truck that had served as a makeshift prison... They discover that the vehicle is registered to a man named Fred Woods, who is none other than the son of the quarry owner. Woods is quickly arrested, along with two of his friends, brothers Jim and Rick Schoenfeld, and all three eventually confess to carrying out the kidnapping. 
They were just middle class young men in their early 20s that concocted this idea that they could kidnap these kids and get $5 million in ransom. But Rick, James, and Fred were never able to get through to the police department because phone lines were so jammed with the parents worried about these kids and what was going on. Their harebrained scheme completely backfired because the school kids and their bus driver escaped before the gang's ransom demands could even be heard. All three men are convicted of kidnapping and remain in prison to this day. And at Bright's Pioneer Museum, this yellow school bus stands as a testament to the tenacity and bravery of 26 children and their driver, who survived the biggest kidnapping in U.S. history. Costumes from Broadway and maps of Manhattan are just a taste of what's on display at the Museum of the City of New York. But deep within the collection of this renowned institution is a curious handbill depicting crudely sketched scenes that are unquestionably odd. You see a small child, he's holding a balloon and breathing from it. Here you see two men, and one of them seems to be in some state of high merriment. As Chief Curator Sarah Henry knows, this quaint placard was actually an advertisement for a sideshow with an unexpected twist. Its star was a chemical compound, nitrous oxide. It really strikes you as curious. What is entertaining about nitrous gas? So what was this bizarre form of entertainment? And how did it spark one of the biggest breakthroughs in medical history? 1799, London, England. British chemist Humphrey Davy is searching for a cure for tuberculosis when he decides to investigate a colorless, odorless gas called nitrous oxide. He experimented on himself, inhaling nitrous oxide to see if it could have any effect on lung function. Although Davy quickly rules out nitrous oxide as a remedy for tuberculosis, he encounters an unexpected side effect. What he discovered, he was elated by the inhalation of this gas. Word of the gas's euphoric effects spreads. The chemical is dubbed laughing gas and quickly becomes a popular recreational drug across the UK. Nitrous oxide became an entertainment among the elite in England, and they started having nitrous oxide parties. But it's not just the British who are obsessed with this new substance. The laughing gas craze is about to take hold across the pond. In 1844, an American medical student named Gardner Quincy Colton starts holding exhibitions in the U.S., where he demonstrates the effects of nitrous oxide on volunteers from the audience. For some people, it causes fits of giggles. A lot of people have a sense of elation and so they would dance. And to advertise his events, Colton uses handbills, such as the one housed at the Museum of the City of New York. But little does he know that one of his shows will propel the substance from sideshow into science. On December 10th, Colton throws a party in Hartford, Connecticut. But this time, 
One young man plucked from the crowd inhales a bit too much gas. He really reacts strongly. And in fact, he was so out of control that he banged into a bench and he seriously hurt himself. He was bleeding. Strangely, the injured man seems utterly unfazed by his wound. In fact, he doesn't feel any pain at all. The audience members are dumbfounded. But for one man in the crowd, Dr. Horace Wells, the volunteer's reaction is more than just a curiosity. This is the aha moment. Dr. Wells realizes that not only is laughing gas creating a spirit of euphoria and elation for the person, but it is numbing them to pain. Horace Wells, who happens to be a dentist, has a radical idea to use this gas in his own practice. In an era when surgeries are performed on fully conscious patients, the drug promises to revolutionize the field of medicine. But first, Wells must conduct an experiment to confirm it will actually work. And he has the ideal guinea pig in mind. Himself. He proposes that they experiment on him to see if this would work. It's 1844. After attending a public demonstration on the effects of a party drug called nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas, dentist Dr. Horace Wells has an idea. Use the gas as an anesthetic. In this time before Novocaine, pain-free dentistry would be a revolution. To test this theory, Dr. Wells decides to use nitrous oxide while having one of his own teeth extracted. Wells breathes in the gas enough so that he loses consciousness. The tooth is extracted. He comes to, and he realizes he has felt no pain. And he says... This is the greatest discovery in medical history. With the procedure deemed a huge success, the concept of medical anesthesia is born. But Dr. Wells is about to discover that the path to revolutionary change is fraught with pitfalls. He arranges for a demonstration to the doctors and students at the Harvard Medical School. Anxious to prove the merits of nitrous oxide to the medical community, Wells demonstrates its numbing powers by extracting a patient's tooth using the gas. But instead of a painless extraction, we get a patient crying out loud in pain. He doesn't allow the patient to breathe in enough of the gas, and the anesthesia wears off. So Horace Wells, instead of being a hero, starts being the laughingstock. The innovative Wells is lambasted as a fraud, and his career is destroyed for good. And the showman, Gardner Quincy Colton, whose public demonstrations of laughing gas had first inspired Wells, is also driven out of business. Over time, nitrous oxide is displaced by two new gases, ether and chloroform, which become the standards in anesthesia. But after these new chemicals prove to be both addictive and dangerous, Colton is determined to prove the value of the drug he once popularized. In 1863, he teams up with a couple of dentists and founds Colton Dental Associates at the Cooper Institute in New York City, 
He launches a massive advertising campaign to establish nitrous oxide as a safe and effective anesthetic to make the dreaded trip to the dentist a less painful experience. And it works. Soon, patients come swarming. Over the course of his career, it's said that Colton's associates extract as many as one million teeth, aided by the use of laughing gas. That invention that Wells and Colton made possible still helps us in our medical and dental practices all the way into the 21st century. And at the Museum of the City of New York, this small card pays tribute to those early pioneers of anesthesia. A bullet satchel, World War I Army uniforms, and the insignia of flying squadrons. These artifacts can all be found inside the Texas City Museum, which highlights this port city's vital role during the 20th century's greatest conflicts. But deep within this collection is a relic that serves as a reminder of a day when a tragedy as dark as any touched the Gulf Coast of the Lone Star State. This artifact is about eight inches wide, about eight inches thick, and it's made out of very durable material. This is a ball of sisal twine. And Texas City Park's chairwoman, Jamie Clark, knows that it bore witness to one of the worst industrial accidents in American history. So what was this disaster? And what part did this ordinary ball of twine play in the horrific events of that day? 1947. In the years following World War II, Texas City has become a port of opportunity. In 1947, there were many people coming to Texas City because of the job opportunities after the war. But on April 16th, the good fortune enjoyed by workers and residents of this port is about to change. That morning was a typical morning at the dock. There were ships in the docks, unloading, loading, Nothing out of the ordinary. At 8 a.m., the cargo hold of a French ship named the SS Grand Camp is loaded with supplies to aid with European reconstruction efforts. The Grand Camp was loaded with 380 bales of hay, 59,000 bales of sisal twine, and it was docked in Texas City to be loaded with thousands of bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer. But ammonium nitrate is highly flammable. And as the crew loads the bags of fertilizer, they notice something alarming. A fire had broken out in the cargo bay on the side of the ship. They tried to put the fire out using the only means that they had, which were two five-gallon fire extinguishers. The crew desperately tries to extinguish the flames, but to no avail. And local firefighters are alerted, racing to the scene. But mere minutes later, the deadly combination of fire and the Grand Camp's flammable cargo results in a massive explosion. Thousands of pieces of shrapnel are scattered across the port. There were pieces of the ship that were everywhere. And this piece of sisal twine is one of the items thrown from the freighter by the blast. It was just mass chaos and utter destruction. People were scalded. They were running through the streets. Over a hundred people are killed instantly. But this is just the beginning of what is about to become an even bigger disaster. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Texas City, 1947. The crew of a giant freighter called the SS Grand Camp is loading cargo onto the ship when suddenly a fire breaks out. Despite frenzied attempts to extinguish the blaze, the vessel explodes. Over a hundred people are killed. But believe it or not, things are about to get much worse. A second ship called the High Flyer is docked near the Grand Camp, and it too is carrying a huge cargo of highly flammable fertilizer. As a precautionary measure, officials order the ship to be towed offshore. But before it can be moved, the High Flyer also catches fire. This was absolutely the worst thing that could have happened. Volunteers from across the region desperately try to pull the burning ship farther away from the docks. But it's all in vain. 16 hours after the Grand Camp was blown to high heaven, the High Flyer follows suit. And that explosion was actually worse than the explosion on the Grand Camp. It shot flames over 3,000 feet into the air. Devastation was unbelievable. It really did look like an atomic bomb had gone off here. The destruction caused by the two explosions is catastrophic. Thousands are injured and an estimated 600 people are dead. In the smoky haze of the still smoldering ruins, 
the bloody and battered citizens of Texas City are desperate to know. What started the fire in the first place? There was a number of U.S. government agencies that investigated the explosion. And it's not long before investigators conclude that the dock workers were most likely responsible. One of the longshoremen on the ship of the Grand Camp were smoking and might have dropped a cigarette. And with the cargo of highly flammable fertilizer and bales of dry sisal twine, it would have been enough to cause the catastrophe. But no one can be 100% sure. And 65 years later, the exact cause of the fire remains unknown. Today, at the Texas City Museum, this piece of sisal twine is a grim reminder of one of the worst industrial accidents in American history. Perhaps nothing says St. Louis more than this iconic arch, the defining symbol of America's gateway to the West. But an equally elegant city landmark is the Missouri History Museum, whose frescoed dome presides over an institution dedicated to honoring the state's proud past. And tucked away in its vast research library is a handwritten letter yellowed with age that museum historian Carolyn Gilman knows was penned by a trailblazing explorer who died a mysterious death. It was written by Meriwether Lewis, and it was addressed to James Madison, who was then the president of the United States. So what clues does this cryptic message reveal about the untimely demise of one of the most iconic adventurers in American history? Was Meriwether Lewis murdered? Eighteen o three, President Thomas Jefferson nominates two fellow Virginians, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, to lead an expedition into the vast, uncharted territory of the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson had just purchased this big tract of land, and he needed to know what was out there. When the explorers return from their historic two-year trek, they are hailed as heroes. Lewis and Clark were front-page news all across the country. Following this triumph, President Thomas Jefferson rewards Meriwether Lewis by appointing him governor of the Louisiana Territory. But Lewis soon finds that his predecessor, General James Wilkinson, has left the territorial government mired in scandal and corruption. It took Lewis a lot of thinking of how he was going to bring order to the territory. And that, of course, took quite a bit of money. And when a new administration under President James Madison begins to question his expenses, a frustrated Lewis sets out for the nation's capital to meet with the commander-in-chief in person. But little does he know, his journey is about to take a sinister turn. En route, Lewis and his traveling companions stop at an inn in Tennessee. The first place they found was a place named Grinder's Stand. After dinner, Meriwether Lewis retires to his room. But in the early hours of October 11th, the innkeeper's wife, Priscilla Griner, hears a disturbing sound. About 3 o'clock in the morning, she said she heard a gunshot and then another gunshot. And when Lewis's colleagues enter his room, they are shocked by what they discover. 
What they found was Meriwether Lewis dying from two gunshot wounds, one to the head and one to the chest. Shortly thereafter, Meriwether Lewis, American hero and Western explorer, dies. Could he have been murdered? It's 1809. Famous explorer Meriwether Lewis is en route to Washington, D.C. when he stops to rest at a Tennessee inn. In the middle of the night, two shots ring out. When Lewis's companions go to investigate, they find him dying from gunshot wounds. So was this beloved pioneer murdered? For those who speculate that Lewis's death is a homicide, one man emerges as the prime suspect. General James Wilkinson, who was governor of the Louisiana Territory just prior to Lewis. General James Wilkinson was one of the truly shady characters in American history. Some say that Wilkinson was not only corrupt, but that he even conspired to have the Louisiana Territory secede from the rest of the nation. So could Lewis have found evidence that Wilkinson wanted to keep hidden forever? Perhaps that was the real reason for Lewis's trip to Washington. He was actually going to inform on Wilkinson, and Wilkinson had to stop him. If this was true, the unscrupulous Wilkinson certainly would have had a powerful motive to silence Lewis. But this artifact, housed at the Missouri History Museum, calls the theory that Lewis was murdered into question. Dated September 16, 1809, just weeks before his death, the famed explorer wrote this letter to President James Madison to inform him of his impending arrival in Washington, D.C. But the sloppy handwriting and garbled content of this piece of correspondence is what stands out as peculiar. It's a very unusual letter for Lewis to have written because it's almost incoherent at places. Here's a phrase he writes. I arrived here about 2 o'clock p.m. yesterday. He crosses out 2 o'clock and he inserts yesterday earlier in the sentence. So it ends up reading, I arrived here yesterday about p.m., which doesn't make any sense. But it's not just the grammar that's perplexing. In this letter to President Madison, Lewis also expresses bizarre and paranoid thoughts that make no sense at all. He says that he's apprehensive that the British are going to seize his papers. Now, this is odd because at the time, Britain and the United States were not at war. But what could cause such a learned man to write such a confused and seemingly delusional letter? Some believe it's the product of the strange effects of a chronic disease that had dogged Lewis ever since his famous journey with Clark. Malaria. We know that Lewis had malaria because he wrote about it in the journals. During Lewis's lifetime, late-stage malaria was known to cause deranged behavior and hallucinations. So could this incoherent letter be proof that the pioneer's chronic, untreated malaria caused him to become so unhinged that he committed suicide? In fact, the last person to see Lewis alive, Priscilla Greiner, the innkeeper's wife, 
witnessed the explorer behaving erratically in the hours before his death, which seems to corroborate the theory that Lewis took his own life. She said that afternoon and evening, Lewis became very agitated. He was pacing back and forth and talking to himself. So did Lewis, as this letter seems to suggest, actually die by his own hand? That's a mystery that only Meriwether Lewis can answer. And here, at the Missouri History Museum, this 19th century letter provides shocking new insight into the celebrated life and mysterious death of an American hero. Key West, Florida. This laid-back beach destination is home to the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum, an institution celebrating sunken treasures pulled from the sea. And here, amid silver coins and slave shackles, lies an inconspicuous set of stones. There are these brownish, sort of lumpy-looking things. According to archaeologist Corey Malcolm, these small, rock-like formations were once prized even more than gold or silver. There was a, a trade in them, and they were sort of a, a thing for rich people. So what on earth are these peculiar stones? September 4th, 1622. A Spanish galleon named the Atocha departs from Havana, Cuba with a fortune in gold, silver, and precious gems from the New World. But just one day into its voyage, the ill-fated ship meets with disaster on the high seas. They were hit by a hurricane. The Atocha was wrecked, and the hurricane tore the ship apart. The Atocha disappears into the ocean. And its rare cargo is thought to be lost forever. That is, until three and a half centuries later. July 20th, 1985. Captain Kane Fisher and his crew are combing the waters off Key West in search of the elusive shipwreck. When they come across a strange shape on the seafloor. Two divers went down to see what was below, and there it was, spread out. Silver and gold and emeralds and all sorts of wonderful objects that have been made in the New World. And among this trove of silver bars, jewelry, and gems is a curious assortment of stones. Obviously, coins make sense and gold bars and silver bars. But what are these things? When archaeologists working on the wreck of the Atocha consult with historians, what they discover is utterly astonishing. It was revealed that were Bezoar stones. Named after the Persian word for antidote, Bezoar stones are gallstones that form in the intestinal tracts of animals such as goats, sheep, and deer. But in spite of their unusual origins, just a few hundred years ago, these crude objects were highly treasured in Europe. A Bezoar stone was valued more or less the same as an emerald or a ruby or a diamond. It was worth more than its weight in gold. 
So why are these peculiar stones from the innards of animals so prized? It's 1985, Key West, Florida. Sunken treasure has been recovered from the wreck of a long-lost Spanish galleon. But among the silver coins and gold bars is a handful of plain brown pebbles. They're actually the gallstones from sheep and goats, also known as bezoar stones. But what are they doing among a hoard of treasure? The answer lies in the Machiavellian intrigues of life among the rich and powerful in Renaissance Europe. In the 1500s, the European ruling classes lived in a state of constant paranoia. Nobility and politicians were forever wary of traitors in their inner circles. Poisoning was a common way 400 years ago to assassinate somebody that you didn't like. Some rulers employed food testers to ensure that their meals were safe to eat. But it was believed that the best way to ward off death by poisoning was to use bezoar stones. The doctors fully believed and swore that if you just soak it in your drink or you can scrape shavings off of it, mix it in, it will protect you. Soon, the highest royals in Europe began building bezoars independence that they dipped into their drinks or would set them directly into goblets. If somebody was trying to kill you by poisoning you, the stone would make your drink safe to drink. At least, that's the theory. But do the stones really work? In 1575, a French physician named Ambroise Paré is determined to put these treasured objects to the test. He wanted to see if they really worked. So he made an arrangement with a man who was condemned to be hanged. Paré offers the criminal the opportunity to take part in an extraordinary experiment. He told the guy, if you'll take poison and then take some bezoar stone, you might live. And if you live, you can be set free. Without a second thought, the convict agrees and drinks a beverage laced with the deadly chemical mercury chloride, along with ground-up bezoar stones. And about six hours later, was dead. Contrary to popular belief, it seems that bezoar stones have no effect against poison. Or do they? Almost four centuries later, in 1969, researchers at Scripps Institution in San Diego, California, are conducting research into the properties of these stones that were once considered miraculous. And what they discover is nothing short of shocking. They found that, wow, you know, bezoars will actually work against certain poisons, specifically arsenic. There are compounds within the stone that will actually remove the arsenic out of the liquid and render it safe to drink. Believe it or not, bezoars did work. Today, these humble stones are on display at the Mel Fisher Maritime Museum, proof of the mysterious healing powers of nature. In the heart of Washington, D.C., is the largest complex of museums on the planet, the world-renowned Smithsonian Institution. Its 19 museums and galleries house wondrous artifacts, from the Hope Diamond 
to George Washington's uniform and Thomas Jefferson's Bible. But here at the National Museum of American History is an object that is of a much more recent vintage. It's uh, bright with chrome and it's red, white, and blue because it's been through a customizing process. It's a very special motorcycle. This was the vehicle ridden by one of the greatest daredevils of all time, a legendary stuntman who routinely risked life and limb to set world records. So how did this state-of-the-art machine help an American icon to cheat death and defy gravity? It's the mid-1960s. The world of stunt racing has a new rising star. His name is Evil Knievel. Knievel has made a name for himself by attempting a succession of ever more daring, spectacular, and dangerous jumps. Knievel had been hospitalized several times, and that was just part of his trademark, someone who was willing to risk his own body. And in November 1967, the stuntman takes on a challenge that will dwarf all of his previous stunts. Knievel was in Las Vegas, and he saw the fountains outside Caesar's Palace. But he looked at them, he said, you know, this is my moment. Knievel is determined to vault over the massive fountains, which form a staggering 150-foot-long obstacle. On December 31st, at 2.30 p.m., on the plaza outside Caesar's Palace, Knievel prepares for what will be the longest and most death-defying jump of his career. If he messes up, he might even be killed in the attempt. With the crowd roaring him on, he tears off down the takeoff ramp. He got a pretty good acceleration going as he went up the ramp. For a breathtaking few seconds, Knievel soars over the colossal fountains, only to come up painfully short on the other side. Knievel was thrown from the motorcycle and landed on the parking lot. And at the speed he was going, he just tumbled over and over. The stuntman is rushed to the hospital, where he lies in a coma for days, suffering from a concussion, a crushed pelvis, a broken femur, and fractures to his hip, wrist, and both ankles. Now, Knievel's doctors fear that he will never walk again let alone ride or jump motorcycles. It's 1967. Infamous daredevil, Evil Knievel, attempts a 150-foot jump over the fountains of Caesars Palace Resort in Las Vegas. But when he crash lands, he sustains massive injuries. Will he ever ride again? The miraculous thing about evil is that he not only recovered, but he decided to go back into jumping. And this was just amazing. Not long after Knievel's fateful accident at Caesar's Palace, it's determined that the cause of the crash was due to his motorcycle. Since the start of his career, evil has been riding a Triumph Bonneville T120. But it's a heavy 400-pound monster designed for racing, not vaulting. And with no real springs or shocks, it couldn't adequately absorb the force of landing the jump at Caesar's Palace. 
If Evil hopes to continue his death-defying stunt career, he's going to need a lighter, more forgiving machine. Then, in 1970, a vehicle is invented that may be exactly what this daredevil needs. The Harley-Davidson company provided an XR750 motorcycle to Knievel, and that was a a relatively lightweight motorcycle. Crafted from steel, aluminum, and fiberglass, this custom-built XR750 is a revelation. At 300 pounds, it's faster and lighter than any motorcycle Knievel has ever ridden. But how will it perform under stunt conditions? On October 25, 1975, at Kings Island Amusement Park near Cincinnati, Ohio, Knievel puts this 1972 model of the XR750 to the ultimate test by using it to jump 133 feet over 14 Greyhound buses. It was such an incredibly long distance and was executed so perfectly. Knievel breaks the world record for jumping over the most buses and nails a perfect landing. It just stands out at one of those high points in his career. And this Harley-Davidson XR750 becomes the iconic motorcycle the champion is best known for riding. With the help of this lighter, more nimble machine, Evil finds that he can gauge his speed better, stay in the air longer, and stick his landings more frequently. The motorcycle was pretty fantastic. Knievel was truly a live-action hero who thrilled people like no one before and no one since. Today, at the National Museum of American History, this bike remains a potent reminder of the death-defying leaps made by a fearless, one-of-a-kind showman. From an abandoned bus to a blistering inferno, confounding correspondence to crash landings. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.